This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, first of all, welcome back, Gooseman. For those who weren't with us last week, wasn't here because he was in New York and not to visit Trump Tower, but take part in the voting for the NFL's 100th anniversary team. How'd that go, Goose? Well, there was no voting, merely a discussion of candidates, and there are lots of them, as you can imagine, but there really is no rush for a vote. The NFL doesn't celebrate the 100th anniversary until the 2019 season, so the vote is a long way off. Okay. Well, anyway, nice to have you back. And nice to like have you Like all NFL friend. things, Clark, you know, they, they don't have votes. They just... <laughs> <laughs> Why do it today what we can do tomorrow? Why exactly. can I want to wait tomorrow? Uh, anyway, uh, and Ron, uh, nice to have your friends back in New England. I'm talking, of course, Rob Gronkowski and Tom Brady, each yes. of whom is there for this week's minicamp. Wow, I'm sure that's made your week a whole lot better, Ronnie. Well, I don't know that I would have been able to sleep if the two of them hadn't shown up <laughs> in Foxborough, you know, to, to yeah. participate in non-contact a uh, few days of playing pitch and catch. Which, now that I think about it, is a lot like an NFL game these days. No contact, pitch and catch. Well, I know I wouldn't have been able to sleep, so who do you think will perform better this week? Gronkowski at practice or Gronkowski in the Belmont? Uh, I I think I like Gronk at the Belmont because at least he'll be running for real. <laughs> lots, and I mean lots to get to this uh, this day, although I, I thought the summer was supposed to mean lazy, hazy days. Well, here it doesn't. We have New Orleans coach Sean Payton with us. We've got former foreign and linebacker Gary Plummer to talk about the passing of Dwight Clark, Mike Martz, on his return to coaching, and National Football Federation president and overseer of the College Football Hall of Fame, that'd be Steve Hatchell. He's here to go over the Hall's preliminary list for the class of 2019, which includes some very, very familiar names. Goose, I just saw this list. Not sure who has the tougher assignment, them or you guys picking the NFL's 100th anniversary squad. Oh, the College Hall of Fame by far. We've got to deal with players off, what, 32 teams? they got to deal with players off 100 teams. College Selection Committee probably irritates more folks with their annual emissions. We're about to hear all about it from Steve, and we'll hear a lot more than that in the next two hours as June begins with a kaboom here on the Talk of Fame Network. Kaboom, Ron. Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Man, you can't make this stuff up. Just when you thought we'd heard the last of the national anthem controversy, at least for the summer, um, along comes the president, President Trump, to disinvite the Philadelphia Eagles to the White House because, well, because there were reportedly fewer than 10 guys who were going to show up. Now, this sort of reminds me of those Jaws advertising back in the 70s. Remember? You know, that just when you think it's safe to go back in the water? <laughs> right. And then that music. That music would start thumping. Dun, 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 dun. Exactly. It feels like the same thing. Uh-oh, here comes a tweet. Dun, 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 dun. That's the music. That, that's like the, the White House PR office, that's exactly the music <laughs> that plays every morning when they go, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh, you know, my the, God. The, the president can't seem to help himself. You know, I've, I've seldom seen a guy uh, with so big an ego and as equally fragile an ego as this guy. I mean, uh, I, I was 
around him quite a bit for about 10 years when he was at the casinos going to Atlantic City. There were a lot of fights there, and, you know, it's it's amazing. Just, I mean, he's got the nuclear codes next to him, yet it seems like there's no slight too small for him to blow up, pardon the pun. And, you know, uh, it's it's really amazing. Uh, and not to mention the fact that he lies all the time, which is a bit, you know, off-putting. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like covering someone of the NFL, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, hey, Goose, I know Ron's going to air this one out in the second hour, but um, I, I want to dissect this decision with both of you guys. Um, first of all, I mean, the president has the right to cancel the ceremony, just as the players have the right not to go. I understand that. But why would you do it? I mean, I don't care if there's one person, one eagle there. Um, you're the president of the United States of America, and you're supposed to be above the fray. And and then, you know, you're not, and you fan the flames with more tweets about the national anthem and kneeling and respect for the flag and the armed services and all that. Uh, do you, Goose, I'll ask you just straight up, do you think there's going to be any pushback on this from any of the owners in the NFL? I think the owners would like to close their eyes and hope this issue went away. Yeah. <laughs> Keep them closed until it goes away, and that's not going to happen. The players are now incensed. Yeah, um, it's it's not going away. No, no, it's not, and they're not going to push back because the only thing those guys push is a cash register. You know, I mean, they, uh, you know, they got the first fence they ever straddled and the first dollar they ever made. Uh, uh, you know, I'll tell you one thing about the owners: if those guys have been asked to land on Normandy, as so many real patriots were seventy-four years ago uh, this month, this week, actually, we'd all be eating Wiener Schnitzel as our national dish. I mean, it's just unbelievable. This is these guys and they're flag waving and all this sort of stuff. And you can't find any of them that were any near anywhere near anything other than yeah. you know yeah. how to make a uh, turn a nickel into a dollar, which they're very good at, by the way. Yeah, which they are very good at. But uh, you know, it's funny because I thought every time I think this is going away, and they did think it was going away. The owners basically closed their eyes and went, "We got through the owners' meetings." And <laughs> well, now it's back. I mean, and and it just seems like. Every time there's a disagreement on an issue, it, it becomes not only personal. I'm not. I'm talking about with the president here, but, but vindictive. I mean, I, I don't care where he stands on this thing. Okay, you know, he doesn't like it. All right, but it, then it's more than that. You're either with me or you're not. And if you're not, you're fired. I mean, it's sort of like The Apprentice. I mean, it's it's like um, you know, we have a reality TV president, and, and and players have failed to appear for the annual ceremony celebrating national champions before. Heck, Ron. I mean, Tom Brady. He's missed it twice. I mean, he's one of over two dozen Patriots who didn't appear there over a year ago. Um, and, you know, um, uh, Michael Jordan didn't show up either. I think Larry Bird didn't show up once. Y- yet the show went on. Right. So what's different about this? Well, you know, uh, I think it's probably a little bit of the opposite. From what I understand now, there's already stories coming out late this uh, uh, by Tuesday that uh, Trump lost his mind when he heard Brady wasn't coming the previous year and was all up. He was flying back from Wisconsin or someplace and he was screaming at his at his uh, underlings and got Kraft on the phone and demanded that he had to make Brady come. And, and you know, I mean, Kraft can't make Brady come to practice, let alone come to the, come to the White House, you know. So, uh, yeah, you know, you're right. If you're a bigger person, which Trump is not, but if you were a bigger person, you'd say, look, I don't give a damn if you come to my party or not, because I'm still the president, and you're not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's the end of it. I mean, so you don't have to prove you're the president every day. Maybe you can't believe it. Maybe that's the problem. There's He's not sure. Different. It's part of the day-to-day operation of the White House. It's just Donald Trump doing the unconventional, inviting, then uninviting. For however long, yeah. for however long he's going to be in office, you can expect the unconventional and the unexpected. The right <laughs> is going to applaud him, the left is going to trash him. Yeah, and, and Goose, I agree with you. It seems as if this controversy has no 
shelf life. I mean, um, we've got a president who just simply won't leave it alone. You know, I, I thought there were sort of bigger things on the agenda, like mm, maybe a summit with North Korea. You, know, you think that might have his attention? That one? But, Goose, if you were in Donald Trump's position, if you were president of the United States, what would you have done here? Would you simply have left it alone? Would you go on as as you know as if nothing happened, or would you cancel the ceremony? I'd have invited the Eagles, showed them a good time, sent them on their way. It's that simple. Yeah. How about you, Ron? Well, you know, you could you could do that, and that would have been fine. Uh, you can cancel a party, which would have been fine. Or you can actually <laughs> be a leader and say, okay, instead of this whole photo op and I get a jersey I'm never going to wear with some stupid number on it and all that stuff, right. you know, I want all you guys to come to the White House, and we're going to sit down in a room, and, let's, and let me listen to you guys, like Abe Lincoln used to do on Fridays back in the day, you know, when they had a big line yeah. of citizens would come to the White House every Friday to bitch about, <laughs> you know, whatever was was going on. Uh, how about if he said that? People would be, you know, applauding him like crazy. Just listen to their grievances or, or their position and instead of talking all the time. You know, my dad always used to say, Lord gave you two ears and, and one mouth for a reason. Listen twice as much as you talk. <laughs> okay. I didn't always follow that, as you guys know, but I wish I had. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you spent your summers in your room. Ron, stay up there. I'm not coming up till dinner, sir. Um, okay, on to some more somber and sad news this week, and, and that's the passing of a friend of ours. That's former 49ers great Dwight Clark, who died Monday at the age of 61. Uh, he'd been battling ALS for the past two years, and he recently entertained a reunion of former teammates and friends at his ranch in Montana. In fact, we have one of the guys who was there, was former linebacker Gary Plummer. Uh, he's on with us today, but I've got to tell you guys, and even though you know someone is going to pass away, and I'm not talking about just Dwight, but anyone, uh, parent, friend, whatever, but even though you know they're probably going to pass away, it's always a shock when it happens, and Goose... This was a stunner when I first heard about it. Yeah, it was a shock because he, he seemed to go so fast. you know. But yeah. when Eddie invited everyone out to that ranch in Montana, you, you sensed the end could be near. You know, Dwight was always such a vibrant guy, big smile, yep. wisecrack. Yep. He was always so full of life, and that's the shocking part, you know, especially yep. when the person passing away is younger than we are. You know, it seems like only yesterday that Dwight and his quarterback, Steve Fuller, are leaving Clemson together for the NFL draft. Now he's gone. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's very sad, as 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 we all un- understand. You know, I'm sure, uh, Clark, you felt the same way I did when uh, when I saw a former Patriot running back uh, Kevin Turner pass away from ALS a couple years ago uh, after a long, hard fight. It's hard to watch. Uh, you don't really know what to pray for or what to hope for. Uh, uh, and as you guys point out, even when you know the end is coming, it's still a punch in the stomach when it when it arrives. Uh, you know, it's it's funny, guys, because most people remember him for the catch. But I'll be honest with you, I, I don't. I, I remember him as one of the most engaging, as Goose said, vibrant, enthusiastic, charming, charismatic individuals I, I ever came across the NFL. And, and really one of the few guys in the club or league front office that never, ever lied to me. Um, heck, I mean, you guys remember when we sat down with us um, in, in San Francisco just before the Super Bowl in 2016? I mean, he had a rock star following out there. And yet he was just a guy with us, easy to talk to and loaded with great stories. And, and, and Ron, you know, it's funny, on his birthday this year, I, I texted him. He wrote right back and said, great to hear from you. Thanks. Listen, when you get out here, let's go into the city, have a couple beers, and shoot the breeze. And I thought, I mean, that's the way Dwight was. Yeah, let's let's do it. Come on. Right. No, you're right. And uh, I would encourage all our uh, listeners to go to the website, talkoflamenetwork.com, and read Clark's uh, piece about Clark about Clark on Clark. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, very revealing of who Dwight Clark was. And you know, I, as you point out, that's what made him so beloved. I think it wasn't that he made the catch. Uh, right, right. Uh, it was that he didn't feel the need to talk about the catch. You know, if you ask somebody, you're happy to talk about it. But, you know, he wasn't the catch. 
You know, he That's was right. a greater guy than That's the right. catch. That's right. I'll still remember him for the catch. I'll always remember him for the catch. I wish I had a nickel for every time I've seen that photo or a replay of that catch, especially here in Dallas. If I did... I wouldn't have to do this show each week with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> the same is true for Everson Walls was in the bottom corner of that picture. <laughs> God, boy. I mean, you talk about one of the great moments in NFL history. That, that right. I mean, they, you see that over and over again. And i be honest with you. I, and sorry, Goose, as a, as a uh, Fortnite fan, I never tired of it. moments in NFL history. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Anyway, we're going to hear more about Dwight later. But first, we're going to go get to the College Hall of Fame's class of 2019, which we had introduced this week by the College Football Hall of Fame, and uh, did you see that list, Goose? Yes, I did. Well, we're going to talk to someone who knows all. That we know. Yeah, a lot of big names. We're going to talk to someone who knows all about it when we return. You listen to Talk Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, our first guest, Steve Hatchell, is president of the National Football Federation and overseer of the College Football Hall of Fame. Now, the Hall announced its preliminary ballot this week for the class of 2019 with some very familiar names. Guys like Eric Dickerson, Tony Gonzalez, Marvin Harrison, Ray Lewis, and you have Troy Palomalo, Joe Thomas. They're all among them. Now we think we have a tough job in the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee. Oh, uh-uh. College Football Hall Selection Committee has an absolutely impossible one. There have been roughly 5.7 million players in the history, in the history of college football, and only 997 have been enshrined in the Hall of Fame. So Steve is with us today to explain the process and the candidates. And Steve Hatchell, welcome back to the show. Great to have you here. Well, thank you. Sure nice to talk with you guys. Thank you. That's first off, what's the criteria for election? Is everyone who ever played college football eligible to be on the ballot, or are there stipulations? Uh, there are. For players, uh, for players it's, it's fairly simple. You have to have been a first-team All-American, and um, we use the approved um, teams that, uh, when I say approved, by the NCAA, because over the years there have been a lot of different All-American teams. But uh, there are ones that are approved, and you have to be a first-team All-American by one of the approved teams over the years. <clears throat> and that's pretty much the criteria, and then you have to be nominated by your school. So those are those are the two um, overriding principles that we look at for a player. For a coach, you have to have been a coach for 10 years and have a 60% winning percentage to get into the College Football Hall of Fame. Now, uh, Steve, by those standards, correct me if I'm wrong, which I often am, uh, but it sounds like Tom Brady and Joe Montana will never be eligible for the College Hall of Fame because they were never first-team All-Americans. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, You can put Joe Namath in that group, too. Um, You know, it's a... uh, You know, those guys are spectacular football players. They obviously had uh, terrific... College careers had spectacular and wonderful pro careers, but we don't look at what they did in the pros at all. This is the college football team, and um, you know, we've looked at all of the standards. In fact, we've looked at it again just this week. Uh, we give to our honors court, the selection committee, who have the final say of who the class is going to be. We give them all the details. Who was who were the Heisman finalists? Who were the Outland finalists? You know, we can build a pretty good case for a lot of guys, but if you weren't a first-team All-American, um, then it gets to be pretty tough. So we just stay with that, that you got to be a first-team All-American at, at some point during your career. 
So it's tough. Hey, it's really tough. Steve, Steve, let me ask you this. You, you said you looked at the standards and you looked at them again this week. Does that mean there's a chance that those standards might change in the near future? No. Um, yeah, what we did was we looked at in the context of some uh, other Hall of Fames that weren't approved by the NCAA. You know, there were there were some going back, and I've been around for a long time. That you know were All America teams that existed for four to five years, and then they disappeared. And um, we just want to make sure that we're giving the right criteria to people. Keep in mind, in terms of the numbers. Uh, If you go back from right now to the last 50 years, we've got over 1,500 guys that are qualified. That means they were first-team All-Americans. If you go back 50 years beyond that, and the game of college football will be 150 years old next year, we've got another 1,500. So the numbers are huge. Uh, We only take 12, 13 players and two or three coaches a year. So the numbers are overwhelming, and we make sure that the school wants them in the Hall of Fame. We make sure that they're well qualified, etc., before they get in the College Football Hall of Fame. So it's it's a pretty it's a pretty tough task. I see that the uh, the small school slates uh, uh, has some familiar names: uh, Vincent Brown, London Fletcher, Steve McNair, among them. Uh, I knew Vincent well, of course, when he was here. I had the greatest nickname in history, the Undertaker, uh, which I, which I think should actually have something to do with getting in the Hall of Fame. But uh, you know, another guy is the Browns general manager John Dorsey, who was a two-time Yankee Conference Defensive Player of the Year uh, at UConn. Uh, obviously, not when I was playing in the Yankee Conference, or he never would have made a tackle. But I'm just wondering, uh, for small school sports, uh, uh, is that even more competitive in some ways than than the bigger college classes? Those are the biggest college sure. schools. You bet. And, and keep in mind, we like to um, we take a lot of pride in the fact that we represent all 770 colleges and universities that sponsor football. And every school has their guys. And um, as we like to point out, even if you took off the top 65 players, uh, schools, meaning the Power Five, if you took those 65 out, you've got 712 colleges and universities that are playing football where football matters to them. Therefore, their, their players matter to them. So those are what we call the divisional players. Uh, there are uh, a lot there that had magnificent careers. Uh, the numbers are overwhelming, and um, we do have a separate committee that looks at just the divisional guys themselves. And it's made up of people who knew those divisional players, who coached or played at that divisional level. So they know uh, what the competition was. They look at the geography, where they come from, who was, who was really strong at that span of time. So they get a lot of consideration. And we now build those players into our awards dinner that we have in, in New York uh, every December. So... We look at that part very serious, and all those guys you mentioned are just terrific football players. They were wonderful at the collegiate level, and um, uh, we listen to the schools when they nominate them very carefully. Hey, Steve, just curious, but um, those, those of us on the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee, we're under increased pressure every year to enshrine first ballot candidates. You know, you hear that mantra every year. Hey, he's first ballot candidate. Oh, first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, and that's more and more so as time goes on. You've got some of the same names on the college ballot this year that we have on the NFL ballot, uh, namely Tony Gonzalez, who's up in 2019, Ray Lewis, who was just inducted or will be inducted this summer. Does your panel face the same public pressure for first ballot elections as we do? We don't. Uh, one, of the, um, one of the advantages that we have is that we have a rule that 
<clears throat> for a player, you have to be done with all of your football. And you have to be out of college for 10 years. And so uh, we do get a push, um, but it's pretty minimal for the, for the most part. I'll give you, for instance, uh, Peyton Manning. Uh, the, the automatic consensus was that Peyton needs to be in right away, which was very easy to do. I mean, his collegiate career was, was uh, fantastic. Uh, his pro career was, was just spectacular. Um, but we don't get the pressure that I think you guys do because <clears throat> those guys have, when, once they bubble up to the, to the level to be considered for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, they really distinguish themselves with wonderful pro careers. And um, usually they're there for uh, a, enough span of time that you really have to consider them. Whereas in the college ranks, guys that have been out for 10 years, it tends to lose that, that forward at that, at that point. And uh, so I think that delay uh, keeps us from having that overwhelming pressure like you guys get with the first-year ballot guys. Now, Peyton Manning, that's a different story, but there aren't very many Peytons. You might want to hold off on Terrell Owens to find out if he's on play. Oh, we get we we get all of that. We get uh, we get some we get some really interesting um, sidebars that come in. I tell you that on these different guys, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Steve, Notre Dame has forty five players in the Hall of Fame, tops in college football. Alabama has twenty Hall of Famers. Ohio State twenty five. Texas seventeen. Florida twelve. Do the schools themselves come into consideration at all in this selection process? One of the um, one of the things when I got to the National Football Foundation and and um, as I think all of you know, having been closely tied to many conferences and to the football world, I was asked by uh, conference commissioners, coaches, commissioners, etc., to evaluate what we were doing in terms of the selection of players from around the country. And uh, keep in mind, when the Football Foundation started in 1947, the power of college football was. It was the Ivy Leagues, it was Notre Dame, it was the academies. So there's a lot of emphasis east uh, of a lot of guys that were selected from those schools, and that was the emphasis. But our whole goal has been to be uh, regions, and are we represented around the country? And being a Westerner myself, we tend to uh, at least make sure that we look in every aspect of the country. So we'll, we will take the guys from Wyoming, we will take the guys from uh, BYU, we will take the guys from Oregon and Oregon State that I think for a while might have been passed over, and you, you can never play catch-up, but what we do with the geography and the selection is that we look around the country more than we look at what institutions. Now, to be fair, if you were to see, and we have this in great detail, if you were to see all of the players that Notre Dame has, not only, as you say, 45 that are in, if you looked at the names of the Notre Dame guys that are eligible, first-team All-Americans, you would you would just sit back in your chair and say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe these guys aren't in the Hall of Fame. And um, so rather than look at the institutions, though, we make sure that we have geography, that we take race into consideration, we take positions into, into consideration. And um, we have an unwritten rule in that, um, which was not the case with the foundation for a long time. We do not, uh, we try not to take back-to-back years of players. In other words, if Notre Dame gets a guy in the Hall of Fame in 18, we, we tend not to look at somebody in 19 so that we have a balance that goes around the country with geography and 
um, and, and the positions that we need to incorporate all of the time. So that goes into it. And I think right now, I think we do a pretty good job of not looking at the institutions, <clears throat> but looking at uh, the, <clears throat> the people that should be in and representing the country. Steve Hatchell, thanks so much for the time, and best of mm-hmm. luck with the class of 2019. Boy, that sounds like an impossible task. Uh, tough job, and uh, but you sure nice to call about it, today, guys. It's good to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Adam. That was National Football Federation President Steve Hatchell. Up next, we remember Dwight Clark with former linebacker Gary Plummer. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. San Francisco 49ers great Roy Clark passed away this week at the age of 61 after a two-year battle with ALS and news of his death saddened people everywhere. I mean, I knew him and covered him. Rick and Ron knew him. And our next guest, former linebacker Gary Plummer, not only knew him very well and played for him in the mid to late 1990s in San Francisco, but was there at Dwight's Ranch in Montana this April to say goodbye. And Gary, I know you and I spoke the other day about this, but if you can, tell our listeners, um, what was the first thing you thought of when you heard that Dwight Clark was gone? Um, I, I was actually grateful, you know, that uh, he's no longer suffering because it truly it was, uh, as we talked about the other day, uh, one of his nickname was Hercules. And it was a Herculean effort each day that we were in Montana. There were about 50 of us each day for him to spend even an hour and a half with us. Um, you know, he, he had to have somebody kind of uh, prop him upright uh, when he wanted to speak because he was so hunched over. Uh, and it was just, you could just see he was exhausted. And uh, so my first thought was, uh, extremely grateful he's no longer suffering. When you hear the name Dwight Clark, what do you think of first and what do you remember most about him? His smile. Uh, just a gregarious, effervescent, outgoing uh, personality that uh, very humble. And I think that uh, oftentimes those things don't go together because uh, he was clearly an amazing talent uh, on the field uh, and to be able to be that humble with a guy that was certainly a great looking guy I mean he did date Miss America uh, and Kelly his wife uh, his late wife obviously the, uh, you know she was beautiful is beautiful too so um, you know here's a guy that, that had it all he absolutely yeah, right. had it all but he was, uh, he was humble about it. So, Gary, how difficult was the reunion? I mean, you had a sense the end could be near. Were, were there more tears or laughs? I would say there were an equal distribution. Uh, it was 
Eddie's place there in Montana is is pretty amazing, his ranch. And he has this clubhouse, and it has more memorabilia, 49er memorabilia, than you're going to find anywhere. Um, And it's just his place that he, you know, he hangs out. He has an office in there, and you just walk around and see the history. And uh, guys start telling stories, and it's kind of like a locker room also. And that was the one feeling that every one of us talked about. It literally felt like you were back in, in the off-season, in a locker room, BS and after minicamp, uh, just telling stories. And so clearly tons of laughter. But uh, Eddie had, and I've seen some of the clips since that I'm sure they borrowed from the thing Eddie had made. He had a... Basically, a thirty for thirty made for that event for Dwight, and uh, I found out things about Dwight that I didn't know. I didn't know that he was the original guy that had the amazing work ethic that basically taught Jerry Rice. And we always talk about Jerry Rice being the greatest of all time, and you know the reason for that is not just his natural ability, but his great work ethic. It was Dwight that taught him how to work hard like that. And uh, Ronnie told Ronnie Lott told stories about how there were times in practice he'd have to tell Dwight, "Don't slow down. You know, it's not. We we got a game in a couple of days." And Dwight wouldn't do it. He was a guy that went pedal to the metal, and so it was really cool. It was a great experience. So, how tough was it to say goodbye that final day? Excuse me. How tough was it to say goodbye the final day? Well, it, um, you know, so many tears. I mean, we all had the opportunity to, um, you know, to hug him goodbye and, and, you know, say uh, whatever you wanted to say to him. Um, and it was, uh, you know, each each and every time you walk in, you could just see the guys. You know, we were kind of waiting in line. And, you know, guys would, would have a smile on their face walking up because uh, clearly he was in his, his wheelchair. And, you know, the second you you're finished, you you cry as you're walking away. And I saw, you know, 50 grown men, um, you know, macho football players, start out, walk in with a smile and, and Dwight faint. And as soon as you say goodbye, walk away with, with tears in your eyes. So it was, it was very difficult. Gary, as a, as a football player, why would you say uh, Dwight, you know, made it when so many other guys who, you know, he would always say, you know, he wasn't the fastest guy and he wasn't the strongest guy and he wasn't this and he wasn't that. Um, uh, but obviously he was a very reliable receiver and a guy that Joe Montana really knew he could count on. Um, why did he make it when a lot of other guys probably with his set of skills would have had a hard time? Well, he he uh, gave a lot of the credit to to a guy that believed in him uh, and that we all know, and Bill Walsh, and uh, you know, just seeing something in him, and uh, he might have believed more in Dwight than Dwight believed in himself. Uh, but uh, he also had another guy named Joe Montana that kept telling him, dude, it's okay. You can unpack your suitcase. You're not getting cut. You're going to make this team. And, uh, you know, so having a couple of cheerleaders like that definitely helped him. But he had a tremendous work ethic. And, and to know the stories, you know, that Ronnie told and, and the way he studied the game. And uh, he just, he, he 
knew he would always be that guy to, to find a way to get open for Joe Montana. And, you know, he became that clutch guy for him. It just, uh, and, and I think being humble, even up until his last year, not taking anything for granted. I think too often, if you, if you have a ton of talent, you have the inclination to maybe relax too much. Um, I've said it many times. There, there are a rare few people uh, like Jerry Rice that has an amazing work ethic that goes along with talent. Uh, the other guys that I put in that category are Dion Sanders, uh, Junior Seau. But guys like Dwight are guys that have marginal talent but just outwork everyone else. Uh, and, and that's why he made it. What do, you, what do you take away from, um, and I thought it was pretty amazing the way he lived his life in, in these last couple of years, and a lot of people would have just, you know, sort of gone off and hit it. It happens a lot. Uh, but he didn't, you know. I mean, he, he was he was back at the, uh, in San Francisco when they honored him there. He, you know, had this great reunion with all you guys. Uh, what do you sort of take away from that, the way he, a lot of times the way people end their lives says a lot about them. Well, there were there were times that uh, he actually expressed that to uh, a few players. Uh, we all we all talked about it. Um, of course, many of us had the opportunity over these last two years to go have the lunches with him while he was still living in Capitola. And I know that uh, Clark, you had the opportunity to do that as well. Uh, it, it, you know, those were tremendous opportunities. So tons of guys doing that. But he had expressed during certain lunches, you know, I'm not sure if I want to do this anymore. I'm not sure I want people uh, to see me like this. And I'd rather have them remember me, um, you know, healthy and walking. And, uh, you know, I can remember he came, he, he drove from his house in Capitola to the luncheon that we had that day in his, in his motorized chair. But he stood up and took pictures with all of us at that point. Um, and I know he did the same thing for some of the guys in those meetings. And we had all talked about it, and it got progressively worse. But there were times that he wasn't sure he wanted to do this anymore. And I think, um, you know, clearly he had made the decision to continue to do it because the benefits far outweighed, you know, whatever you want to say, the, the connection to vanity or uh, how exhausting it was. Um, he truly loved um, telling stories again. And uh, Clark and I talked about that yesterday and how um, he was a great storyteller. And he and he still was right up until the very end. And uh, So that's what I'm going to remember is that great smile of his and uh, his ability to tell an amazing story. Well, Gary, just like you said, I mean, he had it all. Um, he, he didn't date Miss America. He dated Miss Universe, Sean Weatherly. I mean, just, and, and they were sort of the couple. I mean, everyone's talking about him, and that was whatever it was, 30, 40 years ago, something like that. But he had great kids. He's got three great-looking kids. Um, he had terrific um, success on the football field, and yet in the end, None of it mattered, and I and I think there's sort of a lesson here. Um, you know, I, I remember, and, and Ron would know this well, too, and Rick would. Al Davis used to say, "Death is the great equalizer," and he's right. I mean, you know, when it comes down to this, it doesn't make any difference what Dwight had. He was a great looking guy. He was six four. He took over a room when he came in. Everyone knew who he was. And I've been trying to sort of play this out for months. Like, how did this happen to this guy? This is the one guy it shouldn't happen to. He had everything. Yet in the end. 
he, he didn't and and it's it's a i think it's a great life lesson just um you know death is al davis right see it's, it's the equalizer it's it's the one thing you know we're all going to have in common certainly and i i think the uh, the other lesson uh, is is you know when you surround yourself with with great people great things are going to happen in your life and mm-hmm. to be a part of this whole thing over these last two years and uh, you know just seeing and really it goes way beyond that it goes back to uh, people that worked in the front office that passed away like Dave Wan it goes back to Freddie Solomon Eddie DeBartolo has been doing this for years and he is one of the most amazing patriarchs to the 49er family to any sports franchise that's ever been we truly feel like we're so blessed to have family and you know it takes an effort for guys to fly from all over the country to go to a lunch or you know spend a few days with a guy and you know if if you're going to do that um, you're not going to just do that for somebody you don't care about uh, and you feel like with Eddie he's created this this family uh, this connection and and it's it goes beyond winning Super Bowls it's it's truly a brotherhood it's truly love Gary how did how did Eddie take this uh, he's I think it were six words that he sent back in a text and basically it just said we're devastated um, you know, Dwight was, you know, Eddie's been a father figure for a lot of players, mm-hmm. uh, but Dwight was like his little brother. Um, and so they were so close. And, uh, you know, remember, you remember Eddie, they're only 10 years apart. And Eddie, back in those early days, I mean, he's a 34 year old multimillionaire who owns, you know, the best team in football um he did a lot of time he spent a lot of time hanging out with the likes of dwight clark and um they were good times and so this is a guy that he's he shared so many experiences with um and he truly feels like he, he lost a little brother today or yesterday oh yeah no no question um hey gary as always thanks for the time you're the best Thank really you, appreciate it. thanks thanks for doing this Thanks, Gary. That was former San Francisco linebacker Gary Plummer. Up next, it's Two Minute Drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, Robert, uh, someone's bound to blow the wheels on the show, so why don't you? That's the Two Minute Thanks. That means it's time for the Two Minute Drill with Rick on this week's plays. Gooseman, let's hear it. So the Eagles aren't going to the White House. Who should President Trump invite in their place? Robert Mueller. <laughs> no, no. The Falcons. Then Trump can announce that they actually won Super Bowl 50. <laughs> <laughs> Kyler Murray is a starting quarterback at Oklahoma. He's also a top 10 pick in the Major League Baseball draft this week. Which sport should he choose? Baseball. Because there they encourage you to hit. <laughs> <laughs> Baseball. Because there they guarantee your salary. <laughs> Speaking of baseball, Clay Matthews suffered a broken nose in a charity softball game. Going forward, should he stay off the diamond or work on his glove hand? Stay off the diamond. The only Matthews I want to see there, Goose, is Eddie. (laughs) Actually, go on the diamond, but wear your football helmet. (laughs) (laughs) Who would you sign, Des Bryant or Terrell Owens? 
That's on both as stars of America's Most Unwanted. <laughs> That's a good one. I would sign neither. I already have two headaches. <laughs> okay, what NFL team should sign Bryant Orowens? Cleveland, losers for losers. <laughs> Anyone wants a pain in the butt and to win nothing? Hello, Bengals. <laughs> Who is the receiver in today's game most like Dwight Clark? Nobody. Only one guy with the Dwight stuff. <laughs> Chris Hogan, but slightly faster. Michael Kendricks, Anna Kendrick, or Jimmy Hendricks? Can't believe you're asking this, Goose Man. Eddie Kendricks. <laughs> Forget that. Kendrick Perkins. He can get on TV without doing anything but sitting on the bench. <laughs> That's right. Aaron Rodgers wants an opt-out in his next contract. Did the Packers give it to him? Yes, sir. In 2030. <laughs> Why not? They got an opt-out. Tennessee's Delaney Walker says he's the best tight end in the league. Who do you have? Best tight end? J-Lo. <laughs> best tight end? Gronk in traction. Saints quarterback Marshawn Lattimore says he's trying to become a legend. What's his definition of legend? The guy married to Chrissy Tagan. <laughs> Someone who NFL Network insists is a first ballot Hall of Famer the first time they catch a ball. That's the end of the that's the end of the first hour, but stay where you are. We have Mike Martz and Sean Payton coming up, as well as Ron with his gorgeous or bogus. That's all in the second hour, so don't go away. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron, and we are your Hall of Fame guys. Mostly because we're all Hall of Fame voters. That's why they call us Hall of Fame guys. Pretty simple. But as our, your Hall of Fame voters, we have a vested interest in Hall of Fame quarterback Jim Kelly. I mean, who doesn't have a vested interest in this guy? He's strong, he's tough, he's resilient, and he's out there battling every day. And last weekend, Last weekend, he wasn't battling. He was golfing at the 32nd Annual Jim Kelly Golf Tournament and making news. He announced that he's going to receive the Jimmy V Award for Perseverance at ESPN's annual ESPYs in July. And, and you know what, Goose? I think that's pretty cool, and I think it's very, very appropriate. I would agree. This is one tough son of, son of a gun. You know, he may yeah. not have won any Super Bowls, but the fact that he's still out there golfing tells me he's kicking cancer's tail. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward actually to hearing what Jim has to say that night. He's uh, he's really had a hard fight, as we know, against the toughest opponent there is. Uh, but he keeps uh, marching on without a real sense of complaint or or self pity. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's actually more grateful than anything else. So he always was a linebacker disguised as a quarterback, and then obviously he still is. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Ron, but I think some of our younger listeners may not know how good Jim Valvano was as a basketball coach. He was very good at Iona and NC State. But they know him instead as the guy who says, don't give up, don't ever get up, give up in those Jimmy V plugs. And, and I can't think of anyone who epitomizes that mantra more than Jim Kelly, you know, Kelly Tough and that, that stuff. But 
he keeps undergoing treatment for cancer of the jaw, and and you know he underwent a twelve-hour surgery in April. I think that was his third. Um, yet here we are, less than two months later, and he's stroking golf balls at his tournament. That's, that's unreal. Yeah, no question. Like Goose said, he's a tough hombre for sure, uh, both mentally and and physically. And I think in many ways the former is more impressive than the. Uh, the latter, because it would be damn easy to give up by now all that he's been through. Uh, but mentally, he was never a guy who, who gave up, uh, as he proved by coming back to Super Bowl after Super Bowl after Super Bowl. Yeah, Ron, he's not even 60 yet. There's still plenty of life and fight in his body. Lots of golf strokes, too. <laughs> right. Jim <laughs> Kelly, don't give up. Don't ever give up, and we'll see you at the ESPYs. Up next, it's Borges or Bogus. And the White House? Yeah, the White House. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Not sure you guys saw this, but uh, I guess you probably did. But Johnny Manziel. Johnny Manziel. I mean, the guy looked pretty decent last week in his uh, debut with the CFL Hamilton Tiger Cats. I mean, granted, it was just an exhibition game, guys, and it's the CFL, but he looked like... Well, he looks like Johnny Manziel again back in college. I mean, he plays all over the field, completed 9 of 12 for 80 yards, and he ran for another 10. And then afterward, I will, uh, I'll be honest with you, I like what he said afterwards. He said he wasn't nervous, but he made up his mind to, quote, just go out there and let the ball rip, unquote. You know what? That's Johnny Manziel. you got to like it. And I mean, Goose, if he's serious about resuming what seems like a fractured career, not a bad first step. Yeah, I wish he'd done this a year ago. The CFL yeah. has always been a great spot to build or rebuild a quarterbacking career. Warren Moon, Jeff Garcia, Doug Flutie all parlayed CFL stints into Pro Bowl appearances in the NFL. And I hope Colin Kaepernick is watching. If he wants mm-hmm. to continue having a football career, this is where he should be playing. Right now, Kaepernick is waiting on the NFL. Go to the CFL and make them want you back. That's what Manziel's doing. Yeah, or the Alliance, Ron. Go to the Alliance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go to play both. What the heck, you know? Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, um, you know. I think most people are always willing to give a guy some credit for trying to put, you know, the pieces back together after they made some mistakes. Uh, mm-hmm. It looks like that's what he's trying to do. Uh, you know, we've all at some point in our lives been in that position. But when you're a kid like Johnny Football, uh, and you're in that position, everybody in the country knows about it, and that just makes the mistakes of youth, I think, worse. I mean, I hope he goes up there and just plays football and. and Keeps his nose clean and, and uh, yeah. really shows people, uh, as Goose points out, it's the perfect field for him. It's the perfect dynamic for him. You know, you got to run around. You've got to throw the ball a ton. Uh, you know, and that's his game. Yeah, I hope he does, too. Run and stay away from the Labats and the Molsons. I hope he stays away <laughs> yeah, from those. do that. I mean, yeah, come yeah, on. Yeah. Um, hey, Goose, man, uh, you saw him play in college. Uh and, and I thought he was a ton of fun to watch. I mean, I, I, I would watch just to watch him. I didn't care about the team. I just watched him. Um, I would think the CFL is probably the perfect spot for him to put himself back together, right? Yeah, three downs, all passing. It's all about the quarterbacks. You know, quarterbacks yeah. who can run are rewarded. He can run. Quarterbacks who can throw are rewarded. He can throw. It is the perfect spot to build a tape library for his future NFL employer. And, that, and now that now that he's showing the NFL he's serious about football, there will be another NFL employer down the road for him. Yeah, and, and Goose, not just that league, but that team and that coach, June Jones, wide open, run and gun, you know. June tried to recruit him at SMU. Oh, he did? Yep, and that's, he finally got him. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> he finally got him. That's right. He did finally get him. Uh, Ronnie, I, I, I saw that the Jets GM, Mike McCagnan, he was there at that game. So was Houston's pro scout. How many teams do you think are interested in what happens next with Manziel? And I'm talking about NFL teams. Well, I think all of them. You look, I mean, all these guys know they're one injury away from uh, not having a competitive quarterback and hence not having a competitive team and hence getting themselves fired. So uh, I, I think if Johnny Manziel can do uh, anything up there, uh, they're all going to want to know about it. And, and the more he does, the more teams going to be up there uh, watching him. Uh, getting tape of them and trying to decide whether or not he can help their team. So I, I think all 32 teams are are paying attention to what's going on up there. And, and the I'll, landscape has changed. You know, yeah, the that's right. Drew Brees and Russell Mill Wilson, plus the high draft selection of the Heisman Trophy winner Baker Mayfield, tells us the NFL is no longer that hung up on the height issue of quarterbacks. You can be a six foot quarterback and thrive in the NFL. And Menzo right now is taking the necessary steps in Canada to get back stateside. Hey, Ronnie, how come your Patriots weren't there? <laughs> They'll get the tape. They'll just get the tape. You know, it's all good. Actually, they probably were there. Just no one noticed because they were on the down low. <laughs> That's right. No one was talking because it's no fun to be with that team. Um, hey, I mean, speaking of the Patriots and the Jets in Houston, do you guys think he ever plays in the NFL again? Or, or maybe the Alliance, Ron, I, I sort of jokingly said that earlier, but the Alliance of American Football, uh, that spring developmental league that starts next year. I, I know, Ron, you and I spoke to Steve Spurrier about that league about a week or so ago, and, and he did. He brought up Johnny Manziel's name without us even asking. Sure. I mean, like Goose pointed out earlier, there's no question. I think that uh, uh, you may see him in both those uh, uh, places if he's serious about a comeback. Um, but, you know, anybody who saw him play the, the, against Alabama a few years ago, understand yeah. what his upside is and what a yeah. competitive kid he is and how he can take over a game uh, against superior opposition. Uh, now, whether he can keep control of the rest of the demons, you know, that he's lugging around uh, that cause him so many difficulties, I think they'll be watching that too. Um, but if he can, he's definitely going to get another shot uh, to, to do something in the uh, NFL. Reminds me a little bit of Doug Flutie, although Flutie didn't have uh, the same kind of problems, obviously. Uh, but he couldn't get a break, so he went up there, uh, and when he came back, he became a starting quarterback in the NFL. Hey, I don't speaking think, I don't of think, quarter- I don't think Mantel ever plays in the Alliance League. He doesn't need development. He needed maturity. Yeah, right. I mean, this guy's right. a first-round draft pick. I mean, this guy knows how to play quarterback, like Ron said in that Alabama game. He knows how to play quarterback, and he's getting a swagger back. And I think whenever he's down with the CFL, he's going directly to the NFL. Hey, Gooseman, quickly, speaking of quarterbacks and Mike McCagnan, you ran a poll on our website, com last week. It asked readers to name the Jets starter for the opening week of the season. Results were, pretty, results were pretty convincing, I thought. Yeah, Teddy Bridgewater got more than half the vote, which surprised me because I thought uh, Sam Donald, third overall pick of the draft, I thought he'd be a factor, but never a factor. Josh McCown finished second. Teddy ball game. Hey, uh, who do you think opens the season, Goose? I, I think McCown. You know, he wasn't the problem last year. He had three yard, three yard pass games against the Patriots, Chiefs, and Carolina. He can sling it. He's not the problem. Yeah, I'll take McCown too. Or maybe I'll take this guy. That would be Ron Borges with his Borges bogus observations. Or rants. Take it back. <laughs> What's it going to be this week, Ronnie? Well, guys, we hear a lot about fake news these days, and nobody knows more about that than the news manipulator-in-chief, also known as President Donald Trump. Uh, Tuesday, it was the uh, Philadelphia Eagles' turn to get a dose of it when the president tweeted out that the reigning Super Bowl champions have been disinvited to the, hall, uh, to the White House because they disagree with their president. Isn't that the right of, the, of us to disagree with our president? That's the basis of all the freedoms we hold, isn't it? Or was that fake news when Thomas Jefferson and the rest of those guys wrote the Constitution? I mean, when the real patriots 
who formed this country declared independence, wasn't it from a guy back in England who they felt were demanding that they kneel before him? What'd they say? Fake news, not doing it. Focus. <laughs> Focus BS. <laughs> and then news. <laughs> exactly. And then Fox News, which is to Trump what the Dallas Cowboy Weekly is to Jerry Jones. Uh, you know, they reported on this uh, and it illustrated it illustrated a story with uh, a picture of Eagle players supposedly kneeling last season. Yeah, they were kneeling. They were praying before the game that they left the game in the same you know physical condition that they entered the game. Uh, and eventually had to retract that. Bogus fake news. Uh you know, uh, the important point for people to get, in my opinion, is that no Philadelphia Eagle ever refused to kneel for the national anthem last season. Not one, none, zero. So why did Trump say he rescinded his invitation? According to his statement, it was, quote, they disagree with their president because he insists that they proudly stand for the national anthem, hand on heart, in honor of the great men and women in our military and the people in our country. Well, that's beyond bogus. They did all that. And number two, if you have to force people to stand, then they are not honoring anyone. Second, the people who actually are or ever were in the military, which does not include President Trump or anyone in his immediate family, by the way, they weren't serving to force an audience listening to a song in a football stadium to stand up. They were doing it so they had the right to stand, sit, cover their heart, thrust their fist in the air, or do the hokey pokey. They can do what they want. Try that in Russia and you disappear, which is why we ain't them. Now, you may or may not like it, but that's what the country is really supposed to be about. You convince people to stand by what you stand for. Not by ordering them to do it. Then ask him over for a party. He's probably going to say, no, thank you. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Wherever you stand on this, or Neil, you should at least understand the difference between fake news and real. No member of the Eagles refused to stand for the national anthem last season, which makes you wonder what the president who claims they did stands for. Ron, enough of this namby-pamby stuff. Tell us how you really <laughs> <laughs> Just works the hell out of me, Gooseman. No matter where you are in the political spectrum, you know, you know, this is what our country is about. There are many countries in the world where if you did what those players did, uh, you know, they would disappear like Colin Kaepernick. <laughs> you know, I mean, just gonzo. Uh, but they wouldn't be around to receive any awards either. They would really disappear. So, I mean, we should be proud of that. And instead, we're in this silly argument over this nonsense. Uh, you know, meanwhile, half the people in the stadium are buying beers and eating hot dogs during the national anthem. So, I mean, come on, please. <laughs> Stop. Now I know why you didn't come to my party, Ron. I guess I'll call this <laughs> love to come to party. Okay, anyway. We mentioned the Alliance of American Football and a possible connection to Johnny Manziel. That was before Ron took off. And we'll hear from its newest coach. That'd be Mike Martz when we return. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, the Alliance of American Football is a developmental football league that will open play early next year, and they just added San Diego to its list of franchises. Now, that was smart, but so is the addition of Mike Martz as the San Diego head coach. Now, first of all, Mike lives in San Diego. Second, he's a marketable name. And third, he knows how to coach. He took the Rams to the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. And, and right, fourth, he's also a friend of the show, and he's with us today, all the way from Idaho, where he's on vacation. And Mike, great to have you back on the field, and great to have you with the show. Congratulations. Well, thank you, Clark. It's, uh, thanks for having me. So first question, what do you like about the alliance? You agreed uh, so much so that you returned to coaching. Well, it's a couple of things. The first part of it, when I checked into the league and, and what it was about, um, the way it's structured, you know, where there's, there's not an ownership in the individual teams, um, the money's 
up front was good. You know, make sure that this guy a chance of making it up for a few years until he can get going. Uh, the people involved, uh, the way it was structured for the players, uh, the concern for the players and their well-being. And then just above all else, the ability to you know, present a platform for, for guys that just really aren't done playing football when they get out of college and yet they don't have the opportunity to go in the NFL. Hopefully some of these guys will be able to cross over. But the whole purpose of this league is really to let some guys that are real good players continue to play. They're just not ready to, to hang it up, so to speak, yet. So those are the things. And then the fact that it was in San Diego, uh, it's hard to say no. Yeah, I think it would be hard to say no. Well, speaking of real good players, Mike, uh, any chance you can talk Kurt Warner out of retirement to play with you? Well, I, you know, if he has any of the problems that I got, you know, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of that uh, the hot tub or the jacuzzi or whatever, you know, the, the body's sore. And I think at that point, uh, you know, if he can play, um, that's great. I mean, that would be an unusual thing. But uh, I think at that point, I'd be more concerned about injury. I don't think there's any question that he could, he could line up and play. I'd be concerned about his ability to protect himself and, you know, stay in one piece. So, Mike, how, how will you go about building or, or assembling a team? What, will there be a draft? Will you choose the players? Will be a, Will there be a geographical element? What, what, what's going to happen? Well, each team will have basically four NFL teams from which to draw from on the cutdowns. And uh, then they'll also have a geographical area that will include universities from which they can uh, glean players uh, that weren't selected in the draft. And then there'll be a, a process to go back and pick up players that have been out for a while that maybe they played four or five years, have been out a year or so. Or you know, there's a, It's like a three-tiered system. It's really well thought out. I think it's very fair. And the whole idea here is to make sure everybody's a good quarterback and compete, and that there isn't anything loaded one way or the other so that these guys can have some success. Will you get uh, Southern Cal, I assume? Yes, I believe we'll get Southern Cal and, and UCLA, San Diego State, you know, most of the West Coast. And, and of course, Arizona will get the Arizona schools, probably Utah, Southern Texas, and, and whatnot. Also, is this league going to be all about the quarterback position, developing quarterbacks? <laughs> I think it's got a chance. That I think that's certainly one of the highlights of it. Uh, I, I do think that uh, there's a, there's really a, a dichotomy, if you will, or a separation of football when you look where college is, is headed, when the NFL is headed. You know, the, the preparation of the quarterback is, is less and less in terms of what they'll see, for instance, in the National Football League. And I think with the offensive linemen, it's even worse, if you can believe that. I know, you know I coach the NFLPA game every year for four years, and each year I'd ask the offensive linemen how many of them have ever been in a three-point stance, and there might be two or three guys at center or center who's ever hiked the ball directly to the quarterback. And it's just kind of, I'm not saying it's good or bad, it's just where college football is gone. So the, there's such a striking difference and some of the things that uh, are fundamental just because of time you don't get a chance to handle it and I think uh, teaching these guys football from the ground floor going back and getting them geared up in terms of you know more of a professional approach to it that you would see in the league is probably what we're we're about. Uh, Mike we talked to uh, Steve Spurry about the league uh, a week or so ago and he immediately brought the names of uh, Johnny Manziel and Tim Tebow. Immediately also pointed out that he would have the territorial claim on Tim Tebow, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> just sort of, right, right. right. wonder if you see a possibility for either one of those guys. Uh, uh, obviously, one's in Canada and one's playing baseball now. But do you, do you see much of a chance that either one of those guys might come into your league? 
Well, it's hard to speculate. I, I probably, I would think so. I, I think it's got to be an inviting opportunity for him. Um, I think they both obviously want to pursue it. Uh, just a question of you know getting it done, I guess, and, and where they're going to go. And Springer, of course, gets Tebow. So um, the biggest issue is being a good teammate. You know, um, this is not an individual or a, um, I don't know. I guess an independent contractor kind of a deal. Still a team game. Uh, you know, the guys have got to blend and and be unselfish and, and pull together as a team too. So I think the personalities that you get there at the quarterback position are very, very important. And Tebow obviously would be terrific with that. I'm wondering, you know, especially in San Diego where, uh, you know, Clark spent a lot of time, and obviously, and Goose and I did as well, and you got golf courses in Coronado and Mission Bay and the OB and the over-the-line tournament and all those other things, you know. Uh, even got the zoo. Uh, so why will That's people come out to tournament? <laughs> yeah, sometimes it is. So why will, do you think people would come out and watch spring league football in San Diego? You know, it's interesting. Uh, people don't realize how big a football town San Diego really is. Sid Gilman, uh, and of course, Don Coriel. The, the history there is exceptional. I was there when Sid Gilman was with the Chargers, and of course, Coriel and whatnot. And so I, I grew up on football in San Diego, Aztec football, San Diego State, the Chargers. I used to go to the Charger games when they're playing at Balboa Stadium down at San Diego High School. Um, there's such a strong tradition of football there, and people love it, and they miss it. And whether the Chargers are, were there or they're not, I think obviously this team was going to be there, but. I, it does uh, scratch a niche there. There's a lot of people who love football in San Diego, and uh, will support it. Mike, I, I don't even know where you guys are going to play. Are you going to play in um, uh, Qualcomm, or are you going to play out at the state? Where, where, where are you going to play? Qualcomm. Oh, you are? Yeah, this, this, yes. Uh, and and I, to my knowledge, I think I, our offices will be where the Chargers used to have their office there in Qualcomm as well. Oh, wow. By the way, it's called SDCCU Stadium now, I think. Oh. I still refer to it as a Murph, you know, Jack Murphy. Yeah, so do I. Right. So do I. I do, exactly. I do the same thing. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I know you're not supposed to announce a coaching staff, but it sounds to me like at least you have yours lined up with some pretty well-known names. I heard Slater's name, Dre Bly, John Kitna. That, that's a pretty good group of people you're putting together. Yeah, I'm very pleased with, you know, and Pat Morris will, will also help with the offensive oh, line. He's a 17-year-old guy in the pros. And you know, Larry Marmee, coordinator. And Larry McDuff in the league for many years, of course, in college football. Uh, Vince Amy from Arizona. So I think we've got a real solid group of guys that have been coaching for quite some time are really grounded, as well as bringing in some guys that are trying to, you know, jumpstart their careers to get into the league and, and carry on as well. Mike, how's the how's the money work? Is there a salary cap? Is there a star player exemption? How how, how are these guys going to be paid? No, I think they all make the same, and, and I, it's really the way it was explained to me. And I I got to be careful because I can be way out of line on this. But they have fantasy points too. So if somebody is liked a certain amount of times, then the, then they get an additional bit. Um, if you if your team wins a game, then you get money for winning the game. Uh, it's not going to change a whole lot, but everybody for the most part is is the same. Uh, it's, it, I mean, you're still going to make a decent living, but you're not going to get rich certainly. Not. And that's one of the things I like about this league. It's kind of football at its, at its purest. You know, the motivation to play because you love playing the game. You love football. Well, you know, you're talking about your staff. 
And uh, one of the things that we were all talking about before and wonder about is, you know, where's Stamper? Where's Ernie Zampisi? Can't you get him out there? I talked to him already. (laughs) 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 Talked to Ernie. Ernie already said he's going to be at practice and make sure I got a chair for him in the office and all that sort of thing. Ernie most definitely will be there. You know, how do you how do you have a team in San Diego and not have Ernie Zampisi someone involved? You know, exactly. He'll be outside the building smoking too, like he used to do when he was in New England, freezing to death and smoking outside. <laughs> he doesn't smoke anymore. He, he got off those, what? I think, in 2001. Yeah, so he hasn't smoked for a long oh, time. Oh, good. Good for him. Well, that's great. Well, he, yeah. You know, he was he was a star baseball player, as you know, at USC. And one of the guys yeah. on that team, and I've forgotten who it was, he used to tell me, he goes, when the ball would come in from center field, it would have nicotine stains on it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Mike, oh, one other question is, uh, how is this league going to compete with the XFL? I realize that's not your concern, but th- there's another, you know, sort of spring league coming up as well. Um, is that a, is that something that, um, you know, you kind of think, well, I don't know how we're going to go up against those guys or, or, or not? i, I got to be honest with you, I haven't given it any thought. You know, I just... Okay. I just really uh, focus on on this league and how they're going to go about it, and whether or not it's uh, there's an interruption or a conflict. I, have, I haven't really given it any thought, to be honest with you. Okay, Mike, you coach a team in a Super Bowl. Why come back at this level? You know, the biggest thing for me um, when I when I was when I left the Rams as a head coach, Mike Holmgren could take a year off and then go back in as a head coach and. And I wanted, I didn't want to stop coaching. I didn't want to take that year off. And so I got back in and was an assistant course at Detroit and San Francisco and then Chicago. And, and as years went by, I think, A, they felt probably because of the heart infection I had, they weren't sure that I was healthy. And then B, once you go back to being an assistant, they just kind of, that's, they pigeonhole you as one, you know. So that was kind of a mistake, I think. And, and at that point in Chicago, when I realized that it wasn't going to happen anymore, it was time for me to retire them and come back to San Diego. So here's a chance to basically be left alone and, and uh, coach a team with a bunch of guys that, that I care about and feel strongly about and just kind of uh, hang on San Diego and coach football. Doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for the time. And you know what? If you need someone to run quotes in San Diego, we're all available. We can hang there, too. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you having me, guys. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, thanks Mike. Mike. That was Mike Martz, new coach of the San Diego entry in the Alliance of American Football. Up next is Sean Payton of the New Orleans entry in the National Football League. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Sean Payton's career started at quarterback, and he's been obsessed with offensive since Sean's first 11 years in New Orleans. Few coaches in NFL history have produced more yards or more points, including finishing first or second in total offense five of the last six seasons. But his finest coaching moment came in Super Bowl 44 when he led the Saints to a 31-17 defeat of Peyton Manning's Indianapolis Colts, where the Saints came back from an early 10-0 deficit and relied on a very shrewd 
and I mean shrewd coaching decision to do it. Last season, the Sean Saints were back in the playoffs after a three-year hiatus, going 11-5, and five, and Drew Brees, of course, pawned up more passing yards. And they were within seconds. In fact, they were within one play of reaching the NFC Championship game. And today, well, today, Sean is with us. And, Sean, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you guys having me on. Before we get uh, into your coach career, Sean, I, I, I'm guessing you are the only guy in the NFL to have once played quarterback at Saffron Lane Sports Center in, uh, for the Leicester Panthers. I only uh, know the Saffron Lane Sports Center because a friend of mine used to live in Leicester. So pretty, uh, I, think, I think that is a safe bet. Um, that was back in 1987 with the Leicester Panthers. There was a little British football league over there, and each team had four Americans. Birmingham, Nottingham, Leeds, uh, shoot, a bunch of teams. And uh, we had some good times, good, uh, good teammates. Now you had, uh, uh, you had been through a stint at the Arena League, and I believe your contract got sold to the Canadian League. Then you ended up over there. It sort of sounds to me like the dream of uh, of playing died hard for you. Was it uh, was it fun to do, or, or was it frustrating to sort of you know be chasing your dream all over, really all over the world? No, I mean I think look, you're young and you're hungry back then, and uh, you know you're traveling, hoping to make a team, and then after about a year and a half, two four different leagues, um, I got the opportunity to get into coaching as a graduate assistant in San Diego State. So, but. You know, I had a chance to travel and, uh, and and really get exposed to a lot of good people. Sean, whose staff were you working on at, at State? Because I used to be out in San Diego during that time. Whose staff were you working on? Well, when I went out there, it was Denny Stoltz. And yep. then later, I returned with Al Luganville. So uh, I was with both those head coaches. Yeah. Denny Stoltz had a lot of success there, and so did Al. Um, let, let me fast forward to the Saints and the NFL and talk about dreams. I mean, when you became that team's head coach in, in 2006, you inherited a team that had gone 3-13 and, and and really suffered through all the difficulties of Hurricane Katrina. Um, what prepared you for dealing with a team that had been down in a city that was still going through so many difficulties and tough times? Well, some of it you can't be prepared for. I mean, some of it you learn on the fly and, you know, you hire good people and, and you, you know, allow them to do their jobs. Um, I think that the opportunity to spend three years in Dallas with Bill was important. Parcells in, in, you know, trying to build a foundation is not only what you want to be as a, you know, as an offensive coach, but a head coach um, and how you want to run your, your department and, everything philosophically to scouting to uh, putting together a roster, your training room, your weight room. So, but that all being said, um, that, that situation in 06 was much different. Uh, I think than a lot of, a lot of first time jobs and there's no utopia when you get started, you know, you hope to get in there, scratch and claw, uh, begin to build a program and then have some success to, uh, to see it through. Let me ask you something, Sean. I talked at the outset about your sort of finest moments winning that Super Bowl, but um, how significant was what you did there at the beginning? As I said, fighting through the the, uh, the, 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 the history of the team and then the Hurricane Katrina and coming back from that um, because, you know, you make the playoffs your first year, you named Coach of the Year. Um, you had to go through an awful lot of hardship to get there, and I'm just wondering if that – compares favorably with winning the Super Bowl? Well, I, I would say this, and I think 
you know, a lot of New Orleans would agree. The 016 was as important. Um, you know, it wasn't our best team, uh, but I would say one of our tougher teams. You know, they, they, they laid a foundation. You know, we got all the way to Chicago in the championship game and lost that game. Right. But it helped, uh, really, that draft and, and that team helped kind of build the foundation for the success that came later. You know, Sean, you, you talked about uh, uh, one of our friends of both of ours, uh, Bill Parcells, and, and what you learned there. I'm just wondering, um, working under him, was what you took away from there, was the stuff you took away that was not sort of strategic football in some ways more important to your own success in the world than you know, the accident that, that uh, uh, is so much a part of your life? Well, there's no question. I mean, there, there were so many other things you learn daily. You know, there's, there's, uh, you know, just the inner workings of your staff. Like I mentioned before, the training room, um, the schedule, calendar, um, you know, how you evaluate players, what are prototype, what are your guidelines for each position. Uh, you know, for, for three, the better part of three years there with him each, each, each season, you know, was a, was a huge learning experience, and there was a, a ton of guys on that staff. Um, you know, Todd Haley, who's out of Cleveland now, Mike Zimmer, myself. Um, oh, I'm going to go through. I'm, I know I'm leaving a few guys out. Todd Bowles, um, Anthony Lynn, and those are four head coaches right now in the league that were, were all assistant coaches at one point during that three-year period. Wow. What is it about Parcells? What is he, I mean, his coaching tree is pretty amazing. Really look at, what is it about him? What's he, what's he got? What is he teaching? There's got to be something special there. Well, I think there's a, there's a toughness element, a uh, level of confrontation of, of what to expect from your team, how to prepare your team. Um, I think he's very good when things are going well. He, he probably is more difficult recognizing human nature. And then if you hit a couple setbacks or bumps in the road he had a great way of kind of bringing you out of that um he was he was challenging fair uh hard on the coaches just as the players and uh, i think every one of us learned from it sean speaking of bill was there was there any piece of lasting advice that he gave you that you still call on from time to time well i think the formula for what you're what you're trying to do philosophically offensive defensively and in the kicking game and, and then going about trying to find it uh, you know, via the draft free agency or, or even in free agency after the draft with rookies. Uh, you know, you, you've got a short window when you first get started and how important, you know, he, he was he was fantastic with personnel. That's funny you say that, Chuck, because I remember one time at the, at the Combine, uh, he was in Dallas then, and we were talking, and, uh, and he kept talking about Sean Lee, this, Sean Lee, that, and, you know, so that and go, that did that teach you anything? Do you go broke trying to find another Dat McCoy? <laughs> I remember laughing, thinking you just told me how great this player was, but at the same time, you knew that you could spin your wheels looking for another guy like him with with his That's size right. issues who could play play the way he played, you know. Yeah. He was very good That's about me. looking at what the player could do instead of not what he couldn't do and, and then building around that. Mm-hmm. Hey, Sean, um, I, oh, oh, go ahead, Ron. Well, I was just going to say the most famous call you ever made was the, uh, you know, was the onside kick call. 
Uh, running, we always love the bold call because if it works. We can say you know how great it was. And if it doesn't work, then we just say it wasn't. You know, what were you thinking? <laughs> perfect for right. It's a dangerous <laughs> right. for, for, for very dangerous for coaches. Um, had, was that something you were thinking about the possibility of all week long, or was it something that the moment was such that you realized this is something we got to do? Well, I think we felt going in with Peyton playing as well as he had been, you know, we, we needed to find a way to steal possession. We looked, spent a lot of time actually on a fake punt, and Indianapolis had a number of looks with their punt defense that created problems with it. And it kind of shifted in the second week during preparation to that onside kick. And I, I think, look, as a group, as a team, we felt like there'd be an opportunity for us to do that. We didn't know when, and, and then just making the decision at halftime, trying to, you know, jump back in it and, and gain a little momentum uh, and, and trying to keep, you know, arguably one of the best quarterbacks off the field for a little longer. I was just going to ask, uh, ask him, you made that decision, but uh, so uh, it's going to sound kind of redundant to say, do you have any second thoughts? But as you're talking about it, is there any sort of staff, back and forth about it any of your assistants looking at you no i think this i think there's an element of this is what you know we think has a good chance at work and now let you know let the head guy call it when he but i think it empowers your team a little bit regardless of whether you're recovering or not i mean i think your team knows you're going in with a mindset to win the game and i think most importantly you know obviously you want to execute it but but you're also instilling a little bit of confidence in them and it, look defense if it doesn't work we're back out on the field let's go sean i, I mentioned at the outset about uh, you were within one play and in really a matter of seconds of reaching the conference championship game a year ago and you were uh, i'm just wondering uh, a how many sleepless nights has that caused you since then and b can you use that as motivation going into this season because clearly you were one of the top teams in the league last year well, I think I think we began to play better football in the middle part of the year towards the end of the year. Obviously, it's disappointing when a game ends in that fashion and yet, you know, you, there's so many there's so many moments to a year, there's games you won maybe where you you felt some breaks went your way. Uh certainly we've got a good young nu- nucleus back of players that you know that 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 are anxious to uh you know start this 18 season. I'm sure the the uh Every one of us looks back in that game, and you know there there were opportunities. Even the series before the the field goal, you know, we convert a first down, and we're going to take that clock down to probably three seconds and kick the field goal rather than leave time on the clock. So uh, we'll build on it. You just hope when your career's over with, you have more wins than losses when it comes to games like that. Yeah, um, I don't think that'll be a problem for you. Um, and, and the second question I wanted to ask you is, what is it about you and Drew Brees? I mean, why have you guys meshed so well? Because I covered the Chargers when they had decided they should move on from him. They got Phillip Rivers. Then, of course, he wins a division title and becomes Drew Brees again. But when he became a free agent, nobody would touch him, including Miami. But you guys did, and you clicked immediately. What is it about you and Drew? Well, I think first – his work ethic and preparation uh, is, has, has been fantastic. The leadership he's provided our team, uh, you know, it ended up being the right fit. And, you know, for us, we were, we were like, a lot like an upstart company. Uh, and, you know, he was coming off a significant injury, really unprecedented with regards to recovery. Um, fortunately for us, we were able to secure
secure his services, and shoot, he's still going, still playing at a high level. <laughs> yeah, I think he is. Um, how much longer do you think he can go, Sean? Well, we we take it year to year, every one of us, and you know, we, you get asked that question a lot. I I really don't see the age until his kids come by the facility, and we. We also say, you know, once you, you start looking at each other's children is when you begin, begin to realize how fast the years have gone by. But he keeps himself <laughs> yeah. in great shape. You know, he's someone that pays attention to his diet, his sleep, all those things. And it's a big reason why he's been successful. Sean Payton, thanks so much for joining us. And, and best of luck this season. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean. That was Saints coach Sean Payton. Up next is the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Robert, let's try this one more time. Blow that whistle, will you? That's the two-minute Thank you. Goose, that means it's time for the Duma Drills, so do this one like Johnny Manziel and let her rip. And quarterback Philip Rivers wants the Chargers to re-sign tight end Antonio Gates. Should they? Yeah, sure, for their pickup basketball team. If Philip is willing to take a cut that equals Gates' pay, sign up. Speaking of the Chargers, where is all this Super Bowl smoke coming from in San Diego? San Diego, it's coming from Carson. A lot of smoke coming from Carson. <laughs> from Nick Canapa's kitchen. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The new 49er Cassius Marsh says his old Patriots teammate Jimmy Garoppolo shredded the New England defense in practice daily. Sour grapes by Marsh or perceptive analysis? Uh, last time I checked, whose practice doesn't count. Just a reminder, this Cassius is no clay. <laughs> perceptive analysis. He'd know he was one of the guys playing on that defense. <laughs> that's right. Marsh clearly wasn't a fan of the Patriots' way, so tell me, who's the perfect fit for a Bill Belichick team? Tom Brady. A 6'5", 255-pound, deaf mute. <laughs> Raven safety Eric Weddle is bullish on rookie quarterback Lamar Jackson. Should coach John Harbaugh be bullish as well? Yeah, only if he can prove he's not the NFL's Steve Blass. He better be bullish. He's the guy who's got to coach him. Aaron Donald, Aaron Rodgers, or Hammer and Hank Aaron? Aaron Copeland. Who? Hammer and Hank. He's a real first ballot Hall of Famer. Hoedown. Aaron Copeland. Tony Mandrich and Vince Young are both on the College Football Hall of Fame ballot. Who stands a better chance for induction? Young. Better available non-Spartan. Very good. Definitely Vince Young. He won a national title. Running on regular, not high test. Isaiah McKenzie fumbled six times returning kicks to the Broncos as a rookie last year. He wants another chance back there. If you're Coach Van Johnson and your own job is hanging by a thread, do you give him that chance? No, sir. Because he'll fumble that one, too. In August, yes. In December, no. Hugh Jackson finally jumped into Lake Erie. So who was the big winner? Charity, Browns fans, or Lake Erie? Dial Soap. (laughs) Charity. Browns fans are never winners. We'd like to thank Gary Plummer, Sean Payton, Steve Hatchell, and Mike Martz for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, thebetalkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.